Okay, we've been working through uh, the, the gaps, filling in the gaps a little bit on Tuesday night because on Sunday morning we've been going through the different days leading up to, of course, the crucifixion, which we'll have this Sunday. Uh, but we've been filling in some of the gaps and there's so many things that we could talk about, but I chose something, had it half ready, and then changed my mind. <laughs> Isn't that something? <clears throat> and uh, just because I was reading and came across this, and I said, this is where we got to go. This is what we got to think about. Uh, we're in John chapter number 17. And John is a fabulous author. Uh, the best authors in the Bible are the ones who speak very plainly and make things clear. And, uh, and you look at in uh, Genesis chapter 1, it's a fabulous bit of writing where Moses writes, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. The Spirit of God moved across the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. I mean, you can't get much better writing than that. It's fabulous. But we do find another piece of writing, same style, same creative mind in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And without Him was not anything made that was made. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This guy's a fisherman. All right? He's a fisherman. But he really had a mind to author things that were fabulous. And when you understand something about the Bible, you know that there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's many similarities between them. They tell the same stories and they repeat the same sort of things. And they were all written, not quite simultaneously, but uh, they were written earlier than John. And John got those three Gospels, read them, and said, gee, there's some things missing. I want to fill in the blanks. And so he puts in the story of Nicodemus, the one who came to Jesus by night. Puts in the story of the woman at the well, because he says we need to learn these things. And so John has really had a grasp of what he was doing. And he's thinking in his mind back. Now they have written the life of Christ three times. Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, Luke's gospel. And he's thinking, if I'm going to fill the gaps, if I'm going to write about something that they didn't, what would it be? And he's thinking, I think I'll write about the most mind-expanding experience that I ever had, and that was the Last Supper. Now, when you come to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you may get uh, 15, 20 verses on the Last Supper. And they do a nice job. And then you come to John. And he writes chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16, chapter 17. He writes five chapters on the Last Supper. Obviously, it was a stunning experience to sit there with Christ at the Last Supper. And 
uh, he just says, I'm not going to let any of that go. We're going to have it all. And so he takes us right from the beginning as they arrive in the room all the way to the end when they leave to go to Gethsemane. Now last week we talked about Jesus praying in Gethsemane. And I said, do you remember, <clears throat> it's not often you get to see Jesus pray. And we talked about the struggle in Gethsemane. But in chapter 17 of John, <clears throat> just before they leave the upper room to go out to Gethsemane, uh, Jesus has been talking about stuff that's just amazing. If you really want to comprehend how things work, you read John 13, 14, 15, 16. Those are the ones where Jesus is explaining to them before he goes, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to send a comforter. You're a vine. I mean, I'm a vine and you're a branch. You've got to grow through me. You're going to experience the power of the Spirit, and here's how it works. And he goes on and on of those wonderful things. But the last thing he does is say a prayer in John chapter 17. Some people have called it the high priestly prayer of Jesus. They can call it whatever they want. Uh, I suppose you could call it that if you wanted to. It's the last prayer he's going to pray with them. And uh, so that has its value. Remember, it's a, it's a family experience, Passover, and I've been telling you that now for a couple weeks. It's a family experience. It's not a temple experience. It's what the family does together. And so he's with the family that he had, which was the 12 disciples there in the room, and he's praying this prayer for a family. And so if you have a family that needs prayer, pay attention. Pay attention. This will get it for you help you to understand what he's thinking. And he is going to offer himself as a sacrifice in just a few hours. And so, yes, it's a high priestly prayer. When a priest comes, he's going to give the great offering, once a year offering, where he goes into the Holy of Holies. He's going to pray before he goes in there if he knows what he's doing. Now, at this time, the High priest is Caiaphas. He got no idea what he's doing. He got no idea what he's doing. All right? And so he, of all people, came to be the high priest. And when he's going to go into the Holy of Holies, he's planning the murder of Jesus before he goes in. All right? So you know he's out. All right? Uh, but, uh, and that's what I was going to think about some of the people involved in it. But I come to this, and I think this is well worth our effort to try and grasp for ourselves. And Jesus is going to pray, and it has always been just a thing with me. You hear preachers preach a sermon, and then they pray. You can't tell the difference. They're still preaching when they're praying. Right? Here they preach the sermon and they preach it all over again when they pray. And uh, I don't think prayer is that this is what prayer is. Prayer is talking to God. 
All right? It's not impressing people by your fancy words. And a lot of preachers will preach this sermon and then preach it again <laughs> and call it prayer. And uh, I don't think Jesus needs to be preached to. I don't think that's what he wants. You know, so uh, I think it's better if you're going to talk to God, just talk right to him. And Jesus is going to do that in this chapter as he finishes this tremendous uh, couple of hours that he's had with him. He's going to wrap it up with a prayer. And there's nothing like it. And when we get into it, it's going to expand our mind a little because it's not simple stuff. It's hard to wrap your mind around. And that's why nobody preaches on this. Because it's hard. It's hard. And it also is just like we said last week when Jesus is praying, you know, his mind is so superior to ours that if we can kind of get a few bits of it, we'll be happy. So uh, he has finished the Passover meal. He turned it into communion for the first communion. And then he's gone on from there <coughs> to explain very important things, things that we really need to understand. Then he comes to finish it up. He says a prayer. Chapter 17 of John. And I wonder how John could remember this. I wonder how he could remember some of these things because he heard this prayer and then he wrote it. And I wonder if he wrote it down right away. You know, can you, anybody remember what I preached two weeks ago? Oh, you, you, you have to sit back and scratch your head. And then giving it verbatim, you'd say, no, nah, are you kidding? Well, John, many years later, is going to write this verbatim. And so I wonder if he wrote it down sometimes just as it was happening, because how could he remember such a thing? Here we go. John chapter 17. These words spake Jesus, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father. All right, so he's talking to Father. And that's important in our prayers. And we start with Father. Why? Because Jesus said, when you pray, say what? Our Father who art in heaven. That's the way to address God. That's the way Jesus is about to do it. He's going to call him Father. And, uh, and he calls him Father. He begins the prayer. He's talking to God. He's not talking to anybody else. He's talking to the Father. The hour is come, or the time for me to die is come. I'm ready for what comes next. The time has arrived, and so I'm going to pray this prayer, and we're going to go do it. I'm going to go out and do it. And before the next morning, uh, he's condemned, and the mid-morning, they nail him to a cross. So this is right around the corner, just a few hours away, and he said, the hour has come. Here's what he prays. Glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. 
right? And then and we said, what does that mean? What does it mean, glorify me? He says, glorify me, all right, uh, that I may glorify you. Well, what does it mean to glorify? It makes you wonder. You say, well, is Jesus a little short on glory? <laughs> is Jesus maybe waiting for a little extra? Is that what he's asking for? No, no. Jesus has all the glory there is to have. Father has all the glory there is to have. He's not saying, we've got to get some more glory, God. It's not what he's saying. All right, what is he saying then? Glorify thy son, that thy son may also glorify. If we're going to define uh, glorify, uh, we'd have to say, we're going to start with the myopic eyes. Myopic eyes, you know what myopic is? nearsighted, somebody's nearsighted, can't see well. All right. The human race is myopic. They can't see very well at all. I mean, we're all myopic, short-sighted. We can't see the future. We can't see what's really going on. We sit in a little sort of circle around us trying to comprehend what's going on. We can barely get that done. And so because the human race is so short-sighted, bad eyesight, uh, Jesus prays, uh, glorify the Son. Now, who needs the work? Not Jesus. We do. We need the work. We need to have our eyesight cleared up. We need to understand things. And so he says, I want, Father, I want you to glorify me. I want people to understand what I'm doing. And I want them to understand what you're doing. And when they finally say, whoa, that's what's going on? There, now you're beginning to recognize who God is. And so we have such a poor concept of what God is and who he is that we need to be, uh, have our view and our opinions change about God. We're going to look at God and say, well, now we get it. Now we know. All right, now we understand. So when Jesus says, glorify me, he says, help people to understand what I'm doing and what I'm about to do in particular. And I want to help them understand you, God, and your role in this. And so glorify, that is once people have their eyes open and they begin to understand what God is all about and who he is, then they say, wow, I didn't know that. That's who God is? That's what he does? And then the opinion rises of God. We suffer usually from a low opinion of God. We think he's mad at us. We think he's not paying attention to us. We got all kinds of low opinions of God that aren't even close, aren't even close to reality. And so because of that thinking, he says, I'm asking the Father to glorify or clear up their sight, help their vision, so they can see what's about to happen. That's particularly important when in six hours he's going to be hanging on a cross. 
People going to understand that? We hope so. Glorify me so that when people see me hanging on a cross, they can say, oh, now I get it. Because this will be the most intensely instructive moment in the history of all mankind, Jesus hanging on a cross. That's what it's about. So in order for, he's praying, clear these people's mind up so that they know what you and I are doing. Because it's going to be important for that. So his first prayer is for himself. And Jesus prays for himself for five or six verses here where he's asking God for help. Now, verse 2, As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. So he says, I have, he's talking about himself, I have power over all flesh. Power over all flesh. And he said, you gave it to me. The Father gave me power over all flesh. Now, I want to go back uh, forward in the, in the text, but back in history. Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. It's a very important little phrase here. To help us comprehend what he means when he says, you gave me power over all flesh. When did that happen? How did that happen? What's that all about? Revelation 13, I'm looking at verse number 8. Revelation 13, verse 8. All that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the, in the life of the Lamb slain, in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. All right. So it says, the Lamb, the Lamb of God, was slain from the foundation of of the world. We would call that creation. The world was founded, it was created, and it says that the Lamb, Jesus, was slain from creation. They know he wasn't. He wasn't slain until right here in the book of John, back to chapter 17. He was just slain in chapter 19. They'll crucify Jesus. No, no. No, no. There was, for want of a better way to explain it, a meeting that was held before the creation of the world between God and God and God. God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And they sat down and said, would you like to create a whole new race of people? 
Well, let's consider the possibilities of creating a new race of individuals, a whole new uh, type of creation, the human race. We want them to love us. Okay. Will they do that? Well, it hasn't been true in the angel realm. He created the angels, and the angels rebelled. And it says, and what we believe is one-third of heaven went in rebellion with Satan. And uh, he says, so if we create another race, is there a possibility of rebellion in that race? We want them to love us, but is it possible? Well, it's much more than possible. It's guaranteed that they will rebel against us. So what are we going to do? Should we create the race? Well, the only thing we can do is redeem them. Or once they go astray, bring them back. And somebody's got to pay for sin. So the father said, who are you willing to pay? And the son said, yes. I'm willing to pay for the race. I think the race is worth it because we will create them in our own image, which is different. We're going to create humans in our own image. Why was that fortunate for us? Because if we weren't in the image of God, we weren't worth saving. That's why angels were not redeemed because they weren't exactly made in the image of God, and so you just throw them out. And if you weren't made in God's image, that is, you have a spirit, a soul, and those things unite together, and so that you have creativity and those kind of things. If you were not made in God's image, then you wouldn't be worth saving, but they're worth saving. So here's what I plan, prepare me a body, and it says it in the scripture, where Jesus says, prepare me a body, and I'll go down. And I'll go down with him, and I will die and redeem the race. And the father said, yeah, that's the way we'll do it. And the spirit says, I will work to make that happen. And then Jesus said, but there's something I want if I do that. What is it that you want? I want power over all flesh. I want the power over all flesh. And so the father said, perfect. I think it's perfect. You go down, redeem the race, die down there, become human and die, and uh, then you'll pay for the sins of the race, we'll save the human race. Uh, but in order for you to do that, now I give you power over all flesh. It's yours. You now have power over the entire human race from Adam to whatever the last one is born before the end of time. All right. So what does that mean? Well, <laughs> uh, I think when we get to this point, we really are trying to grasp 
When he says, I'll go down and die in return, I want power over the entire human race. So, if he has power over, let's make it you, shall we? You are part of the human race. At least most of you are, right? <laughs> um, so, what's he going to do? Well, he's going to decide who your great-great-grandparents are. And then he's going to decide, more important, who your parents are. He's going to decide that. He's going to decide where you live. You thought you bought that house, didn't you? He's going to decide who you meet, who your companions will be. He's going to decide where you'll work. He's going to decide if you're rich or if you're poor. He's going to decide who your husband or your wife will be. Decide who your children will be. He will decide what diseases you get. He will decide what your hopes and your fears will be. In other words, in God's hand is every part of your life. Given to Jesus before he ever came down here to this world. And now he's praying to the Father who gave him that power. And he said, you gave me that power. I have power over all flesh. And sometimes I think... You know, you think when you're young, I made all them decisions. I'm not something. No, you're not something. <laughs> God was there making people run across your path, uh, moving people into your life, moving people out of your life, putting things in your life. And you think, well, those are blessings, right? Well, sure they are, just you didn't know it. You thought they weren't, maybe. But like I mentioned, disease, uh, I'm sure that God puts disease in our life. I'm positive of that. Say, well, God would do that. I thought he was a healer. There's a reason he's going to do it, and he's going to tell us why. Verse 2, thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. So God, Jesus' goal says, give me power over all flesh, and then I'll go down and die for the race. Because it is my goal, using my power, uh, to bring eternal life to as much of the human race as is possible. That's what I want to do with my power. And there is no question in my mind that disease has played a major part in that. I've seen people on their deathbed. I walk in their room in a hospital and say, I'm so glad you're here. Why? Because I want to get this right before I die. Well, let's do it. Let's do it right now. I've done it right there by their bed. They died a couple days later. All right. Why? You think that wasn't the best thing ever happened to them? They got sick and laid in that bed? You bet your life it was. It's what put him in heaven, all right? Well, that's why he has power over all flesh, because he knows some of you won't come until I put you down. And then you look up, all right? And he knows. He knows what to do. 
And uh, so he says, I, my purpose in controlling the lives of the human race, deciding what era of history that they live in. People say, I sure would have liked to live back in the 1800s. Yeah, well, God put you here now because he knew this is where you need to be now. All right? He knew that this was what you needed. God saved this old building for 30 years, an abandoned building, because he knew people needed to be here. And why? Because he's trying to bring eternal life to people. And that's his goal. And so he's praying here, <coughs> let people's mind clear up. I have power over all flesh. And my goal is to bring eternal life to these people by controlling the circumstances of their life. You know, I thought I worked at Pepsi because it was just a place to go. That's not true. A whole lot of people were influenced by my being there and come to this church and I've done funerals for people all around, sat by them in their dying beds, talked to them, all sorts of, why? There's a reason you're there. And, and it is to do what he wants done, which is eternal life. All right, so let's make sure now, does that all sound kind of like you heard it before? Well, not really. I don't hear that. It's, it's, a, it's a deeper thought than we're used to hearing. And now we're going to blow you out of the water. You ready? It's only verse 3. Here we go. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. So define according to Jesus. Define what is eternal life, he says, to know God. Knowing God. Well, that's not what I thought it was. I thought uh, when we die, we go live forever. It's like a little magic formula. If you pray this little prayer, you're going to be all set. I remember a guy, <laughs> a guy was stealing from our company and uh, he wasn't a very good guy. And I heard him talking, and he said, I went to church the other day, and I got that all set. I'm going to heaven now. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. And according to this definition, here, Jesus said, it's, do you know God? Well, how can that be eternal life? Because you're going to start here. You are going to have an encounter with God between you and him, an encounter with God, and you will be introduced at that time. And you still won't know much, but you'll be introduced. You have a first encounter between you and God personally. I can't do it for you. I don't know how many deathbeds I've sat by him, and I said, I can't do this for you. you got to do it yourself. you got to talk to God. All right? And, and so... Uh, you have an encounter with him and you meet him for the first time and you say to yourself, wow, wow, I think I met God. I think I met him. I had this encounter with God and I think I met him. Well, that's okay. You've got a long ways to go and so you'll know him as much as you can here in this earth and then you'll get up to heaven Say, I got eternal life? Yeah, you're still going to know God. You're still going to be knowing God forever and ever and ever. Because he is so 
superior to us. And his will is so uh, wise. And so people think, well, I'm going to read the Bible and be God's counselor. I'll let him know what he ought to do. Uh -oh. I don't think so. All right? You get to know God, and you know him more and more and more and more as you experience him. And that's eternal life. And if somebody says, I, I filled out a card, and now I'm all set. No, you're not all set. Do you know God? Have you met God personally? And I'm beginning to know more and more. He said, that's life eternal. It's the definition of life eternal. As you know God more, something happens to you. You look at that cross hanging there. He's on that cross, hanging on that cross. And you say, why is he there? Because of my sin. And pretty soon you'll hate your sin. And if you haven't got to that point yet, you haven't looked at him. You don't know him, really. You haven't recognized that it's your sin. Our sin's not thine, thou bearest, Lord. Help us thy sorrow feel till through our pity and our shame. Love answers love's appeal. He's hanging on a cross because he loves you. And we should look at it and say, my goodness, my sin put him there. It's a horrible thing. I want to get rid of it. And you'll struggle and you'll fight with it. You want to get to know God, have eternal life. Knowing God is what it is. And uh, you'll have something come in your life and say, this is a horrible thing and I don't like what is happening to me. I'm not happy with it. Okay. Take a look at the cross. Look at the suffering Savior. He's not complaining. So, as we say, he's got power over all flesh. He has brought things into our life that will draw us to him. Help us to know him better. And it changes. What you thought was bad turned out to be good. Okay? So it's a whole new view that he's giving us of eternal life. Verse 4, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Or in other words, Jesus said, I came down to the world to explain to the human race who God was, who my father was. And he did, I tell you. If you go through and find wherever it says Father, look at verse chapter 16, just the back of page, verse 27. For the Father himself loveth you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came out from God. I came forth from the Father and have gone into the world. And so he's always talking about the Father. When he's uh, talking with Nicodemus, what does he say? Uh, God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The Father seeketh such to worship him. And so we find it over and over. He's always telling us about the Father's doing. He's explaining it. And so he said, I have glorified thee on the earth. Or in other words, I've explained, tried to make clear who the Father is and why I had a work to do. I had a job to do. And I finished the work. I finished it. I had the job to explain who God is to these people down here. And I finished the job that was given to me. Right from there in the temple when he prays to the Father and God says, this is my beloved son. It's the Father and the Son. 
and he's explaining continually who the Father is. And so we understand way more about God than we ever did before. Because it came out of the mouth of Jesus. So his job is to make clear to the human race down here who God is. And he's done that. He says, well, I finished the job I had to do. And he said, well, he said it is finished on the cross. That's right. He finished it there on the cross when he hung there in love and died. And there was never anything more clear that God loved us than that. Nothing more clear. Nothing more obvious. You say, well, he created us. That's right. All right but that was the proof. So he finished the work. He taught us who God is. Verse 5. And now, Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. And it kind of switches here a little bit. Because if you look at Philippians chapter 2, there's no place that says it better. <clears throat> Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians chapter 2. Here's what Jesus is talking about. And this is what Jesus did. When he decided to come to earth, here's what he was thinking. Verse 5. Philippians 2, 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, this is what he was thinking, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, or that is, he was God sitting on a throne in heaven, and he decided, I'm going to go down and be human. And so he made himself of no reputation, took on the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of man. So he's comes down here to earth, and you look at him, and he looks human. Watch him, behaves human. He's God, all right? He's God. And uh, he veiled himself, is what the text actually said. So he's walking around, looks perfectly human, acts perfectly human, eats and sleeps and does what all humans do, and experiences life like humans do. Uh, and where's all that glory? Well, he hid it, put it away. He had it hidden. Every once in a while, it peeked out. <laughs> Not that he didn't have it, see, but it peeked out. He hid it behind a veil. And then he opens the veil a little bit, and he says, wind and waves, be still. That's God peeking out. And then he covers it, and he's sleeping in the boat. Okay, so he's saying here he did that, and being found, verse 8, in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, came obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him, and given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, and heaven and in earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Or, in other words, he said, in the beginning, when we decided to create the race, you and I were in heaven sharing our glory. And I laid mine aside and came down here to the earth. And I can't wait to get back up home, and we're going to share it again. And Jesus said, that's what I want. And God said, no, we're going to do it a little different. 
when you come up here, I'm going to make everybody bow to you. They killed you once, and they crucified you, and they spit on you, and they wounded and bruised you, but never again. They're never going to do that again to you. So I'm going to make you the highest name anywhere. And then the Bible says there will come a day when all his enemies are put under his feet, everything is right, heaven comes down to earth, becomes one great uh, place, heaven and earth molded together into one. And then he says Jesus will step back into the Godhead and have the same glory as before. Not that he ever lost any, but God has given him preeminence over the Father even, if you can grasp that, in heaven, all right? So he says, I'm looking forward to the day, he says, when we're all back together again and when the things are all right. Verse 6, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, thou gavest unto me, and they have kept thy word. Now he's talking now about 12 disciples. He said, God, you gave me 12 men, put them in my care. And I made sure they understood who you were, all right? And they became mine, they were yours, you gave them to me, and now they have kept thy word. They understand, verse 7, and now they have known all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. And so the relationship between the Father and the Son is very, very close. It's very, very close. And people who understood, uh, we need Jesus so we can see God, and that's exactly why he came. Because in the three, in one, the Spirit and the Son and the Father, there was one who extended himself into the world, and that was the Son. And the Son, whenever you see God walking around, it's always Jesus Christ. Whether he's talking to Abraham, whether he's got a sword in his hand with Joshua, whether he's uh, uh, standing, uh, sitting on the throne in Isaiah's vision, wherever you see it, it's always Jesus, because Jesus extends himself into the world. And he says, (coughs) Um, I have extended myself in the world, and they know Everything is between you and I, Father. Verse 7. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me. They have received them. And I have known surely that I came out from thee. And they have believed that thou didst sent me. And so the disciples comprehended Jesus was sent from God. He was sent here on the mission that he, so verse nine, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. So he's now he's praying a prayer for his disciples. He prayed for himself that he would glorify, that is communicate to the world who God is. And now he's praying for those disciples. Uh, And he says, I'm not praying for the world, I'm praying for everybody. I'm praying for the ones you gave me. He's very specific. You understand he's praying for the 12, which are going to be 11 shortly. You say, well, how can that be? You'll see in a minute. 
Verse 10, all mine are thine, and thine are mine. I am glorified in them. They know who I am. Do you really need Jesus to know God? He was sent here into the world so that we would know who God is. He is the expression of God, Jesus. And so I always tell you, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John for the rest of your life, over and over and over and over and over and over again. Keep reading it. You know more and more and more about Jesus. That's what we need. He's the one that helps us understand who God is. Verse 11, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee. I'm leaving this world, going back to heaven. Holy Father, keep them through thine own name, those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are one. And while I was with them in the world, I kept them by thy name. And so I want you to see the important concept here. I want you to keep them. And he said, I kept them. Keep them. It's a keeping power of God. It's something that we kind of sell him short on a lot of times. Uh, He has the ability to keep you. Paul said, I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him against that day or till the end of the world. All right? So if I'm going to say, Lord, I'm going to give you my life, use me in any way you can, uh, he'll say, okay, I'll keep you. I'll keep my hand on you. I'll keep your life. I'll watch over you. And God has the power to do that. Remember Caleb in the Bible, right? He said, God's kept me. I'm 80 years old. I can fight giants just like anybody else. Let me at them. And he said, it's because God kept me. God kept me. And so uh, you can trust God to keep you. Jesus said, I kept them. Verse 12, while I was with them in the world, I kept them. In thy name, those thou hast given me, I have kept. And none of them is lost but the son of perdition. That the scripture might be fulfilled. He says, we lost one. Judas Iscariot. Now, Judas is already gone by the time this prayer was prayed. He had got up and was dismissed during the, at the end of the meal. He gets up and goes out, and he's already gone. Satan entered into him right in the upper room and took him over, and he's gone. He said, I lost one son of perdition because that was prophesied that that would be that way. But it's really not any different. Uh, Jesus keeps everybody who trusts in him except for people who are sons of perdition. Or that is, we are here to rebel. We're here to rebel against God and not do what he says. If it means just ignoring him, then we can just ignore him. Or if it means fighting everything he says, we're going one way or the other. We're still all in rebellion. And so sons of perdition or people who are meant, if you will, to rebel and can't refuse to change, then those people are lost. Verse 13, I now... And now come I to thee, these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. He's about to go out and get nailed to a cross. And he said, I want my joy. 
Right? I gave him my joy. I want my joy to be in them. You think, what kind of joy do you have when they're about to rip your body to shreds? Who is this Jesus? I got joy, and I, I made sure they had it. I gave them, I want them to have my joy. Well, you understand the nature of uh, Jesus. Chapter 12 of Hebrews, verse 2, it says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He suffered on the cross. He endured it. i got to go through this. Why? Because what I'm going to do in the end is going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a lot of joy. And that's the joy I'm waiting for so I can go through trouble for a while because of the joy that's coming. And he says, I want them to have my joy inside of them. That's a wonderful thing to say a few hours before they crucify you. He's so above what you and I think. And he's thinking about the future and what will come. Verse 14, I have given them thy word, and the world hated them, because they not are, are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray that thou shouldst not take them out of the world, but thou shouldst keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So he's praying for his disciples. He says, We're go I'm going to heaven. I'm going to leave them here in the world. And they need to be here in the world to preach and to explain and to tell all the things I have for them to tell. I want them to be here in the world. And I don't uh, want them to be like the world. So I'm going to ask you to, to keep them clean from the world and make sure that they are lights in the world, shining examples. Now verse 17, which I think is one of the great verses here. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Wow. You talk about simplifying eternal life. You talk about his power over all flesh. And then he says, sanctify them. Now that's the goal of every Christian. You may not know it, but our goal is to be sanctified. That is set apart to become property of God. We don't belong to the world. We belong to God. He owns us. We're his property. We're sanctified or set apart to him. And he says, so we want to sanctify. We want to set them apart, make them special. Uh, and we're going to do it by truth. And that's the Bible, he says. The Bible. I heard this preacher talking just a little while ago. And he said, I was in a church and it wasn't doing well and I decided all I'm going to do is explain the Bible in every sermon. And he said and the church grew and grew and grew and grew and grew and grew until he couldn't fit them all in. He got it. He figured it out. That the Bible is what changes us and sets us apart makes us what we ought to be. There's no sound I like better on Sunday morning than this. And I say, turn to Luke, and I hear the pages turning. I love that sound. Why? Because your hope is there. Your possibilities are there. 
your power is right in your hand. We give Bibles to kids who graduate from high school, and somewhere I write in the Bible and I say, this has got everything you need. It lays in your hand. It's right in your hand. I'm giving it to you. It's right in your hand. You open it and use it. It's right in your hand. All right, pray, he says. Uh, sanctify them. Set them apart for me. Your word is truth. And he said, that's what we need. We need truth from the Bible. And so Jesus understood that the Bible was going to be the thing that got you out to you through where you ended up where you needed to be. So you need to be reading it every day. You can't say, I don't understand. Get it and read it. Read one verse if that's all you can get. Get a book that'll help you. Do something. You must be in it all the time if you intend to succeed in knowing God. Sorry. Again, no corners, no shortcuts. It's that's it. It's the Bible. That's what it'll take. And Jesus just prayed here what? Sanctify them. Make them special. You're going to use the Bible to do it. It's the tool in your hand. Verse 18, as thou hast sent me into the world, even so I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they might be sanctified through truth. I set apart myself to explain God to them, and now they want to do that and understand so that they can do it. Verse 20, neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. There's a little space in your Bible there. You can write, he shall be. People who believed because of what the apostles told us. That's why we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, and Romans, and Corinthians, and Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and all the rest of them. Because that was the truth explained, expounded on, clarified, sharpened. He said, and I know that a whole lot of people are going to believe because of those passages. So I pray that they will. All right. Now. That was you and I. He started praying for himself, about five verses, and then up through uh, 20, 19, he prayed for the disciples, and now 20, he's praying for us. I'm glad he got that far. Huh? Glad he did. 21, that they may all be one, as thou, Father, art in me, I in thee, that they may also be one in us, the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me I has given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them, thou and me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved me as thou lovest me. Did you get a little phrase kept coming up again? That they might be one. Over and over and over. All those verses, he says, I want them to be one. Like the Father and the Son are one. It is extremely important in Christian work and in the church that we be one. Extremely important. Jesus is praying for us that we'll be one. 
Well, people have always got to define, well, what does that mean? What does that do mean? Just relax, okay? It doesn't mean we all got to be exactly the same. If that was true, he wouldn't have made us all different, right? He made us all different. Every one of us is different. And people say, I'm glad there's only one Eric Olson. Me too. I don't need him. I don't need it anymore, all right? There's only one of you, only one of me. But he said, together, we are to be one. He said, we are to behave and serve God as one. And he says it again, and he said 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 it again, what, six times? I think it's pretty important. If he repeats it in his prayer for us six times, I want them to be one. All right, and believe me, I grew up in churches where no such thing. They argued continuously. I remember sitting in a board meeting and somebody said, we need a new paper towel hanger in the bathroom. They argued about it for 45 minutes. That was about it for me. I didn't want a lot more, but I mean, Christians have been trained to argue. They've been trained to argue. You go to churches and they'll teach you how to argue by giving you a regular example all the time. Uh, Christians have been trained to argue. We should be trained not to argue. That's where we've got to train people, not to argue. Jesus said, be one. Be one. Right? Not uniform. We're all exactly alike, but unified, we all have the same purpose. What's our purpose? To take God and explain him to the world. How? By the way you live. By the way the words that come out of your mouth. By your behavior. That will help people understand who God is more than anything else. If it's Bible Formed behavior. Important there. Verse 24. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they might behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Talking about that meeting way back. And the father said, you know, I love you. If you go down to the world, they're going to treat you bad. It's going to break my heart. He said, I know, but we'll get the human race. And what I want for them, said Jesus, is that we'll all be together someday. These 12 disciples, 11, are going to go to heaven and be with me. And all the people who came to believe will be together with me. Won't that be a happy day when we're together with Jesus? We ought to love it. He loves it. He wants it. He's the one that asked for it. He's asking for it. I want him to be with me. So he says to what? He says, uh, chapter 14, which is still in the, the Last Supper, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and take you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. There you go. That's where I'm heading. Whatever gets me there is going to make me happy. 
And if I get crushed by a truck out in the middle of the road, don't worry about me. I'm having a time of my life. All right? Whatever it is, it takes me down. They take me over and throw me in a hole in the ground. They say, don't say he's dead. It'd be a highly exaggerated report. Because they'll be having a time of my life. I can't wait to get there. And sometimes I have to kind of control myself. Because I think, man, that's so much better than this. But I'm here on a mission sent by God on a mission. We're here on a mission. We're together in this mission, all right? Verse 25. O righteous Father, the world has not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare that the love wherein thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. I want the people who believe in me to be persuaded beyond all doubt that I love them. That's why I can't wait for us to be together. So he says, I pray that they'll be with me. And I want them to know how much I love them. That's a pretty nice prayer. Huh? Believe me, I only scratch the surface. I only scratch the surface because I'm out of time. See? You could go on and on and on and on. Power over all flesh and being one and what it means to be one and uh, praying the way Jesus prayed and glorifying God by making him clear so people can understand who he is. That's what Jesus prayed and then he went out and died. He was thinking about you just before he went out and died. I often wonder if when he was hanging on a cross, he thought about every human. I hope not. But it's entirely possible that he did. And I'm sorry for that. But, uh, wow, he's thinking about us way, way back when he's about to be crucified, praying for you, pray for you and for me, just before he went out and died. Well, John chapter 17 is the high priestly prayer of Christ. It's the family prayer. See how he prays for his family? The ones that were there with him? Prays for what? That they'll be one and that they'll love and that they will uh, be kept. Pray for your family that they will be kept by God. He'll keep them. He'll keep them in his power. After all, he has what? Power over all flesh. Pray that God will bring into their life the things that are needed to get them to God. Whatever it is. Trial. What's the, matter? What's the difference if it's a trial? If it gets you to God, it was worth every second of it. If it makes you know God, it's worth it. It's worth it. Because knowing God is life eternal. Life eternal. So, so much to say, not enough time to say it. But uh, this, is, <laughs> this is worth... This is worth our effort and why I changed my mind halfway through. Because uh, I thought this is... We got to talk about this because the mind of Christ in the midst of the chaos.
chaos of that last week before he died was thinking about joy in heaven reunited with you and me all there together. Wow. So, <coughs> Sunday, Jesus Christ crucified. Thank you.